Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. great with endings honestly i'm not great with beginnings either based on how many times i've re-recorded this but i find myself today as we approach the end of this particular voyage thinking about endings but more than that i'm thinking about legacies i'm thinking about the things that are left behind the ways that we are or are not changed by our experiences the two books and the two authors who we'll be talking to today deal with that, that question of who are we and what have we become. They think about the ways in which art can change us and the ways that we can change ourselves. It's complicated, thorny stuff, but it feels like there's no better time to think about, well, the future then in a podcast about genre. So first, let's go... You know what? Let's go get some donuts. Rika Aoki is a polymath. When she introduced herself to me, she described herself as just your average transgender Asian martial artist, writer, musician, poet, moonshiner. And if you can imagine a person who encompasses all of those things, and frankly, probably a bunch more, you can start to imagine the person who wrote Light from Uncommon Stars. I absolutely loved this novel and fell into it. It has demons and violins and space aliens and donuts. A lot. A lot of donuts. It's a big, rambunctious novel full of plots and ideas and I wanted to get started by figuring out how Rika did it and why she wanted to put so many of these things into a novel together, let alone how she made them work so well as a team. I've always felt left out and I've always felt odd and I have always felt like a misfit because I couldn't put myself, I guess, on the team. I couldn't like just be part of that. Maybe being steeped in Japanese culture, being part of a team is a big deal. So it led to a lot of self-hatred. And then being transgender, oh boy, that just really stirs up the stew pot. So in order to survive, I had to change the game and I had to say, you know, you know, why not? I wanted to write this and I wanted to send this out and I wanted to be uncompromising in, in this oddity because I know there's other readers out there like me. I know they're out there and they might not know, do the exact same things that I do, but they do other amazing things and they might not fit either. So I wanted to this book in some ways to serve as 
a beacon to all of the readers out there who might feel they don't fit. I'm going to use whatever talent I have to, as a proof of concept. And by design, I knew it had to work because I had to work. This story has to be because I have to be. And if I'm going to find any sort of, you know, unity or any sort of satisfaction or, or wholeness in who I am, the one thing I do better than anything else in this world, with the possible exception of judo, is write. And uh, if I can't do it as a writer, I don't know. You know, you want to give your most, uh, you want to give your best shot with your best talent. And I've always considered writing to be where I've been blessed. And uh, I thought, okay, I want to try this. I think I can do it. And I believe I did. The book does not shy away from the brutal side of life in, in a number of different ways. And I think partially because, as I have talked about on the show before, my own experience with depression is something that's ongoing that I think is for anybody who suffers from it. Writing that stuff and making it hit so hard to a reader feels like a particular skill. How did you balance writing the really, like, thorny, rough stuff that's in this book with then coming out of it and, and living your day-to-day -day life? The short answer is because you have to. To go a little bit deeper and to provide some background, I find it really interesting. My goal, and I told uh, Lindsay Hall, my editor, that I wanted this book to work on two levels. For the people who really like and love this book, I wanted them to understand that, and I wanted them to feel that I was pulling no punches and I was giving everything I could because I could, uh, because that's what I was doing. But there are also people who have had a harder time with the uh, breadth of my work and maybe have gotten stuck on some of the trauma. But for even for those readers who I, I really respect and value highly and you know, love them, that I wanted to give them enough of a story that there was something that they could hold on to as the storm passes. The funny thing is, uh, Charlie Jane Anders one, you know, was writing how gentle and sweet this is. And I noticed that my queer friends say this, that this is such a gentle, sweet book. And the ones who might not be trans or have done sex work or have been through abuse have said, my gosh, it's horrible. You know, it's like it's, some of these things right. are horrible and, and so on and so forth. There's, there's a good and a bad to this. I'm going to go over the bad first. The bad, as a writer, I face my own trauma. And I remember in a therapy session, uh, what clued my therapist into that there was something going wrong. Um, I had originally went into therapy when um, I decided that I'm going to pursue this transgender thing seriously because transgender people die. I didn't feel like dying that day. So I thought that I'm going to put some money that I could actually have used somewhere else for a therapist and, and we'll see what happens. At the end of the therapy session, um, I was just mentioning about this. Uh, we were talking about this woman wailing on her kid in the parking lot, you know, a security camp caught and there was like, and I just said, I don't know what the problem is. It's just another day at the office. And her jaw drops and she goes, we need to talk. I don't think uh, I don't think uh, being transgender is the problem here. To this day, to make this very long story slightly shorter, I worry about where my calibration is. 
having been a survivor of all sorts of abuse, also being a martial artist where you are trained to deny your pain, how much has that affected the sensitivity to my characters and to my readers? And uh, I, I work with this every day. All I can say going forward is I'm, I'm not doing anything to grandstand. I'm not doing anything just to do it or just to say it. When I'm writing, I want to show a little bit of the humanity, a little bit of the vulnerability, a little bit um, of, of a light coming into the darkness. There should always be a light somewhere. I remember as an MFA, my, uh, one of my uh, senior students, one of my uh, senpai, we would call them in Japanese, I was depressed because I was sitting there in the middle of February and it was gray because mm. Ithaca. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and he just sort of said, hey, look over there. You see that little bright patch of sky? One thing about this place is if you look hard enough, you always find one. And uh, I want to always make that true of my of my stories you look hard enough you'll find some blue sky i don't know how genuine this sounds but I, but with all my heart i love my readers and i would never lead them to harm there's a lot of blue sky in this book for all of the heaviness there's so much truly just like gleeful play and i wondered how much of that comes from you also being a musician i think so i think that you know you have this beautiful chopin piece and then all, all of a sudden it's boom 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 and <laughs> it's like okay chopin you know it's like we know you've got a dick uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> got it okay we're good or or the other way you see rachmaninoff and, like, and then there's this beautiful thing and it's like mm -hmm. okay and I think that you do need these, uh, these openings. You, you do need, because um, the palate needs to be cleansed before you taste the next bottle of wine. And if I can go beyond that and actually make those breaks fun, and I can actually make them in their own way compelling, maybe I can actually weave a second story through them. That's how I really try to net things together. You can count by twos, you can count by fives, you can count by prime numbers, but I always wanna land on a story. You write about violin playing in particular. I always love reading musicians who are writers. I am a musician as well as a writer. I, I think that it's not to slight anybody who's not a musician and a writer, but musicians who write have a certain, it brings, it brings joy to me. And I read that you were learning the violin mm -hmm. as you were writing this book. Yes. I would love to hear about that. Well, you know, I know people here can't see it, but you know, this is my violin. Um, I think this is the first interview I brought this out, but oh. I bought this off of eBay, but it is a really, really pretty one. Yeah. When I, when I first was writing this book and learning how to um, approach the violin, first off, I know too many people who are violinists to go in this with anything less than a great deal of respect. I also knew I'd probably piss some of them off because <laughs> I would have to, you know, be a writer about it. Right. But when you, you know, when you look at the instrument, um, it, um, I, when I first saw this, I had no idea how to play it, but, you know, slowly you realize everything is where it should be. It, it's a very natural instrument. And I would have never had the arrogance to say that a violin is a deceptively simple instrument to play if I hadn't picked it up and played it. I learned about the scroll of the violin. I learned about the F holes. I also learned 
really interesting things like when my intonation is off, how can I tell my intonation is off? Because the rest of the violin doesn't sing. There's no sympathetic resonance. You're off a little bit. And I noticed that's very much akin to writing a story. When a character says something that's not quite in character, that section goes dead and there's something wrong. Also, I was fascinated. I also bothered some violin store people, some luthiers, and they told me that, you know, some violinists actually go deaf in the ear because it's projecting so loud. But there's also the best violins actually don't do that. What happens is somehow the sound grows. So you're playing and you think you're playing at a comfortable volume, but somehow there's this tsunami of sound that builds up. And so when it goes out to the, uh, goes out to the concert hall, it, peer, it, it cuts through everything and it becomes um, just so undeniable and compelling. And I just thought, isn't that what we all want to do as writers? You know, not be deafened by our own work and yet have it affect many people. Speaking of having your work affect people, there's a cameo of sorts in this book that I really loved. Lindsay Sterling, who's somebody who I only discovered relatively recently. She guested on a song that my sister did. And I was delighted by the way that you talked about her and worked her into this book. And I thought to ask you about it. Oh, my God, Lindsay Sterling. So I was made aware of Lindsay Sterling when I was looking at YouTube videos, looking at gaming music and anime music. And I noticed this huge following that this Lindsay Sterling had. And I saw some of her videos and I was like, what is this? There, there, there's this dancing and there's violin. I went to go see a concert. And I was trying to figure out what is happening. Now, being a, a musician, I'm thinking, she's good. What's the special bond? And when I went to the concert and I saw how she interacted with her listeners, the, the breaks between the, the music where she was talking about her own experiences with depression and lack of self-worth and confidence, realizing my goodness, she's doing in so many ways exactly what I wish I could do as a writer. And so Lindsay Sterling became a large part of this book, you know, kind of like in some ways, a little like the tangerine juice. You just see Lindsay Sterling pop up throughout the book. And it's just kind of my thank you. And also um, the way uh, Shizuka talks about Lindsay is kind of my, you know, down low way of subverting this trope of music has to sound in a certain way. Thinking about pressure and, and some of the stuff that we were talking about vis-a-vis trauma, a note that I made, specifically thinking about the aliens, but then I realized it also, it's also Shizuka. I mean, it's really, it's everybody in this book. It's specifically the legacy of trauma. I think I'm thinking about this a lot right now because of everything that's happening in the world, sort of making it impossible to not think about. We are either going to continue to repeat the mistakes that have been made previously and continue to, because I got beat down, I'm going to have to beat you down, or make the conscious decision to do something different. And the way that you turn every single storyline in this book, even the small, even the luthier story, into a reflection of how to repudiate the bad things of the past and make a conscious decision to turn to a brighter future. It seems as though people are having a pretty hard time grappling with that on a, on a global scale. I am the only person in my friend group who's read your book so far, because at the time that we're speaking, it hasn't come out yet. But 
it feels like such a necessary entry into the conversation. You know, I, when you, one of the cool things for me about being transgender is because of the wonderful mix of cocktails of hormones and things I take, I never again have to worry about going bald. <laughs> never. I can now watch those Bosleek hair transplant commercials and just have a gut busting laugh because none of this will ever have anything to do with me. However, there's hair all over my apartment now. And, you know, you know, guys can just do this and they'd be dry. For me, it's a thing. One thing I did notice, though, uh, you learn how to work with longer hair. And if I have a tangle here, and if I just kind of do that with the brush and try to get rid of it all at once, I'll rip my hair out. What I have to do is I have to take it from the end and just work it a little at a time all the way up. And actually, the tangle works itself out. This is how I write, and this is how I want to live, where uh, we can't get this all the way, but we can steadily, with a sense of purpose, work the little things out and slowly work it up, and, and things will eventually even themselves out. For example, right now, the Taliban in Afghanistan is doing some horrible things to women, and I can use my platform here to say we need to be aware of this and even as writers thinking and here we are privileged writers in science fiction and fantasy we have to be aware that there are women just like us who can't ever learn how to write or read or write a book simply because of where they were born and that's really a shit lottery and nobody should have to play that one there's a lot of tangle down here that i can start with that we can work together that we can agree on that'll come out and if we keep working, eventually, I believe in harmony. So this work for, you know, what we're doing here is part of that tangle. The fact that I have a really nice cup of iced coffee that I actually bought from a little Japanese market. And it's Japanese iced coffee as opposed to the swill that I usually make for myself. All of this stuff that we do untangles a little bit. And that's the only way because that helps us see our life as a whole. I write about this a little in the book about being able to play a piece of music, play this measure, but being aware of the entire piece and where it might go. Um, so when I'm writing about these characters, I want them to sing because they're an important part of my world. I never want to feel that even the characters that are side characters, the reason they're a side character is not because the story is less important. It's just where I chose to crop the image. And if I had chose to crop it there, I feel I could have written a novel about any character in that book. I cannot think of too many out-and-out -out devils for whom I have had some amount of sympathy because there i did have this moment at the end not to spoil anything he's just doing his job and he's he's gonna go and get an earful mm -hmm. from his supervisor and that and whew, in hell that's probably gonna be pretty bad this character has well you know was based actually on a few people in real life who really in some ways have been racist. You know, there's there are race, there are people who are racist, culturalist, Eurocentrists in music. And in some ways that character talks a little bit about that. And you know, you know, if you ever want to know that, you just watch something like the Chopin competition and hear what people have to say about the, you know, about the Asian musicians. But also it's not necessarily their fault. They were brought up that way. Even when my parents did what they did to me, I found out later, well, my father had been through some of this. 
And you can never know the source of somebody else's evil. Yeah, I mean, it comes back again to the, it's the idea that empathy creates stronger bonds with other people. But there was something about, it. it is helpful to have, honestly, a regular reminder of exactly that thing, of that we don't necessarily know the root of the evil. We can try to stop the evil, but also we don't we don't know what happened to them to get them here. I really I'm going to use the the hair tangle metaphor because it feels so right. You can try to attack the source, but you're going to have better success and hurt fewer people, yourself included, if you take it a little bit more steadily and slowly. I teach self-defense and one of the weird things that I do, sometimes I'll teach people, "Okay, you have a stick. Somebody grabs your hand." What do you do? And I hear all of this stuff about, you know, this or that. And I said, <laughs> mm -hmm. why don't you let go of the stick and put it in your other hand and hit them with it? People will attack the problem, the grab. They'll, they'll go after what's in, what feels, but they'll, they won't think of their entire power, what they can do in a certain situation. This book, a lot of this book is a lesson in what one can do with their entire power. For example, you know, Lan and uh, Shizuka, when they become friends, their power grows, but it takes a while for them to trust that and to learn from each other. And, and with Shizuka and, and Katrina, it's the same idea. But speaking of evil, there is one evil, ultimate evil in my book that, you know, people don't talk about. I'm just going to jump the gun. Do it. Pumpkin spice latte. Come on, <laughs> y'all. That was a joke. Pumpkin spice latte is the official drink of hell. Thank you. you know, so he, when, when he says it, it smells like home. Yes, it smells like pumpkin spice latte in hell. Not so just wanted to put that out there. This leads to your writing food is transcendent. I had to put the book down, a new donut shop opened uh, just in town from where I live. And I was like, hey, I'm gonna go over to the donut shop and get some donut. Like you had incepted that idea into my head because of how well you write about food, writing delicious food and writing food deliciously. That's where being a poet really helps. The trick about writing is what not to write. People may want two scoops of sugar in their coffee or three. So if I say two, the three people are going to be very, very upset. But if mm -hmm. I say I put sugar <laughs> in my coffee and the sweetness was this and that, and it made me think of when I was getting ready for my first driver's test and this coffee was the sweetness that helped me when, you know, and I was, and it made me smile and less nervous when I was driving, um, something like that. Um, you give the fact people can then empathize and and see themselves there so you give enough um so you, you give enough facts to know that you know what you know but then you don't over explain you let the you you give the reaction of the food so when somebody eats it they go oh my god you don't have to go into the recipe because everybody has had that experience before and they will do the work for you, which is like my judo, right? Don't do anything that you're, you know, if you're working with your partner, it's like, why do the work if they're going to do it anyway better? And so whenever I'm writing, I'm writing in partnership with my reader. And I know my reader is writing alongside of me. And there are times when my reader can do a better job than I can. So what I do there is I back the hell off and I just let them fill it in with their with their own ideas of what I what I had given them. I still consider myself a poet who the 
idea of, of writing a novel, I guess what happened was I first started getting involved in long poetry, reading things like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and sort of moving myself out because I had some stories that I wanted to tell. So with my first novel, um, which was Hemelia Hilo, I, just, I, I had just finished really thinking about Toni Morrison, of all people. And Toni Morrison mm. was, I thought, the first real novelist who I thought, that's a poet. That's, that's a poet. That, that, how can that not be a poet? Toni Morrison's amazing. And I thought, well, I have no idea how long it will take me to write something like this. But I sure as heck think I can, it, this is farther along, this is a path that I can take that, it's a lot easier to take this path than it would be to take, you know, John Steinbeck's path. So let's do this. And it's not because Toni Morrison's an easier writer than Steinbeck, but the way I could see how the work was put together. And so even to this day, I tend to write stanzaically in small chapters, you know, and, you know, I do interludes like this. And I think some readers who are not familiar with that, all I ask them is just take a deep breath. I'll get you. You know, I'll get you. I, I go step by step and I'll weave one story. And then when I'm tired of talking about this, I'll, I'll break and I'll go. And I see no reason. I see no problem with those shifts because to be a poet, you kind of have to have the sort of overarching unity. The other thing is the attention to line and detail. I need to know. So with uh, Light from Uncommon Stars, I want it that you can open a page, point to a word and ask me, Rika, why is that word there? And I will tell you. The same way with the poem. I want to have that Ooh. kind of control. And so I can put these little lush things. And because I'm looking so slowly, I can talk about eggs. I can talk about the trash can. I can talk about these little things here and there because they are uh, imagistically significant. It's almost as if I'm putting poetry together. Now let's take a journey to a fantastical world that is falling apart, not unlike our own. A world beset by climate collapse, political infighting, in Andrea Hairston's Master of Poisons. Andrea is a legend. In addition to being a novelist, she's a performer and a director and a playwright, a musician. Before all of that, she wanted to be a physicist, and she's fascinated by the natural world. Our conversation ranged far and wide. And it's one of those conversations that I will carry with me for the rest of time. We kicked things off talking for a while, honestly, before I pressed the record button. But the first question that I had came from reading the acknowledgments at the end of Master of Poisons. When she mentions that this book was apparently supposed to start as something quite a bit shorter. Carl Engel Laird asked me to write a novella and I hadn't, I was like, novella? Oh my God, that's not, I, I'm a big writer. Okay, well, this is a great challenge, but what do I want to write about? And I didn't know. So I, I at that very same time, the, I was reading an article in the New York Times Magazine about uh, parts of the Mississippi Delta disappearing, like the size of Central Park, boom, gone. And this was happening like daily. And I was like, oh my, God. And, you know, and on the table was like a thing about bees, like, please help the bees. And there was a, like a dead bee on the envelope. So these are things that go into, I, like, I keep a journal of things that strike me. 
because I really trust that. What struck me, the dead bee, the Mississippi Delta disappearing, and the casual way we were going on. Like I was casual, like, oh, poor bees. Oh my God. Um, but you have to have characters, you have to have a story, you have to have something. Um, so, uh, and I had just read a Michael Ende, one of my favorite uh, German writers. I had just reread in German, periodically I reread something that I love. Um, and then if it's German, I read it in German. Luckily I can read German. So I read Momo. And in it, the gray men are smoking our time in cigars. So the character in Momo is this amazing character um, who allows the brilliance and beauty of other people to manifest. That's Momo's great superpower. And then I realized that's a griot. Um, so my other passion is West African festival drama and uh, I play some West African instruments. I know griots, I, you know, so I went, oh my God, that's what it is. I'm gonna have a griot character. Once I found the characters, I started actually with a scene in the middle of the book to just say, I, I didn't know it was the middle of the book, but I just wrote a scene like, okay, this is how those two characters meet. And since it was a novella, I thought, yeah, because it's a novella. So you can't spend the time to build all that up. You got to get to the, the that moment. And then, you know, I kept trying that and trying that, but I had to build this entire world. And so my characters were impatient with me and saying, nope, nope, I know you want to get there, but you, you like, who am I really? I, not, I'm not just this one action. I'm all the things that um, made me get to that one action. And it has to be dramatic. So you can't just give an info dump and say, this is how I am or who I am. You have to show people the journey and, you know, and invest them in me and all those things. So I kept saying to Carl, well, you know, it, it's getting a little longer. It's getting a little longer. You know, I, you know, I, I'm beyond 40,000 words. W would you still read it if it were a novel? And he said, yes. So one thing I was really excited to ask you about, there is a moment, it, I think it comes up a couple of times, actually, but it's sort of this refrain that if things are so bad that you need gods or a singular hero, you've already lost. And that really struck me because I feel like that speaks directly to the world that we're living in right now. And it's kind of dark and it's kind of scary. But you never lost hope, I felt, in this book. Yeah. For all of the darkness, you managed to still deliver a sense of, in a way that I feel is reassuring anyway, it's not about someone or something coming to save us. It's about all of us deciding to save ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the single hero or the single, you know, just one, one man, <laughs> you know, now even one woman, you know, we have to join, unfortunately, for some of us with people we may not care for. I don't think we necessarily need everyone, but we need people have to, you know, do the bridge from self to other and, 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 and figure out like, what's your part? What can you do? And you actually need them to do what they do. You know, you actually, you may not like them. You may disagree with them on 20 other things, but on this thing, this is what we all can agree on. Like, this is our world and we're losing it. So what are we going to do? that you have to work very hard to work that out. As a community, we can be heroes. And that to me, that's our superpower, that we can work together. Each of us has something, some insight that the other one needs. That to me 
is where my hope comes from. You know, I think we have this isolated genius notion that there's someone who's so smart mm -hmm. and so incredible that they will solve everything, you know, pretty much just with their brilliance. Um, and I think there's some truth in that. So we need those people desperately. And we need them to be working on the problems that we have. But we also need all the other stuff so that they can have those thoughts. I find myself thinking about theater and I have always loved it. And I have always found the communal nature of it is, is the thing. That's, yep. the, that's the thing. Yep. How does your theater practice inform your writing practice and how does your writing practice inform your theater practice? So one of the things about theater there's this notion that you, Anna Devere Smith said, acting is the journey from self to other. You, you, you know, it's the, you have to make this bridge. And then you have the theater of your mind where you try to understand deeply on a, on a visceral, unconscious level, what it means to be someone who you are not. That's the basic idea. So, so theater is about community by definition. The actor is trying to be someone other, even if it's me yesterday, <laughs> I, I am no longer me. So I'm in community with myself. Theater is essentially about trying to get this sort of singular moment that I'm living in expanded to a community moment. And so every time we come to rehearsal, there's all of these people, we all come together and we change each other. Like you do the same thing over and over and then you change and change and change. And then you make a family and then you, you know, everybody like is so intensely connected that you can do something X and they know exactly what to do. And they do it and they catch you before you fall because you just forgot your line and they help you out and you get back on and there you are and you're okay. And that happens over and over and over again. It's a serious high. <laughs> You go out on stage and they don't know what you've been through, but you give it to them. And so they can at least feel what you, if you, if you do a really good performance, they get the whole history of, of your working on the show and the audience is sitting there like, wow, that was great. I mean, they don't know what you've gone through, but they can feel what you've gone through. And then, and, and, and we all breathe together and our, our hearts beat together and all of that. So when I'm writing, I am always, uh, you know, in my theater mode. You know, it's a rehearsal. Writing is a rehearsal. Mm. Um, I'm the playwright writing. Editing, I'm the director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm the like, okay, uh, Andrew, this is all great. But, um, you know, you got a lot of pages here. We got an audience. We got butts in the seat that are going to get like antsy. Like, what are you doing? And the director is, is not ruthless, but very clear. And I have to go, oh, but I like that sentence. Yeah, well, put it in your journal. So theater has taught me uh, many of those lessons. And I use them all the time when writing. I trust the director, you know, when the director says, you solve this. And then I desperately try to solve it. And then the director goes, mm, not quite, uh, you know, and I, I can't, you know, so I work with that and I, I'm able to do, and this is almost a theater game where you just let yourself be different personas to allow access to different parts of, of what you can do. Cause I, you know, I, I am a director, so I have that whole skill set. And it's a very different skill set than being a writer. Um, and I also act. So I can, you know, I decide, okay, I'm going to be the tree. I'm going to be the ant or the bee. I'm, you know, and I just go there. James Baldwin said, no man is an enemy to himself, right? So when you're acting, you can't comment on the character. You can't like get in there and go, oh, this is stupid or great 
or whatever. No, you're, you are the character. So you have to actually get your ego and your stuff out of the way. So um, it's one of the jobs of the actor is to invest in the truth and the reality of the character. Um, so I feel that I'm blessed that I, you know, I don't act that much, but I have acted and, I, and I've taught acting and I know a lot about acting. Um, so the great acting teachers of my youth, like Joe Chaikin, you know, Anna Devere Smith, those kinds of people who, who really ask like, what is the job of the actor and how do you do it? I, I feel like I've got that skill set, you know, and I use it every time I write anybody. I've got the playwright dialogue. So I feel like I have all of these wonderful things from theater that really work well for novels or, you know, because they're all storytelling mm -hmm. um, tools. Uh, and so I feel like I can use the, the real wisdom of theater to, you know, really help me investigate my story, my characters, and to face difficulties. You, d you play with time and sort mm -hmm. of the, the movement of characters through time, but also in a way that now that I understand that you have a bit of a physics background, I'm like, oh, you, so you're truly working on a whole other level because it, you manage to also impact the reader's movement through time in a way that I don't even know that I can fully articulate. But there's, you know, there's the way that the characters are moving through time sort of on like a linear plot linear, yeah. timeline. And some things condense and speed up. But and I, I was thinking about this particularly in Master of Poisons, maybe because it's so epic, but I felt like you were also doing that to me a little bit. There were moments where it felt like you were encouraging me as the reader to slow down. And then there were moments where you were encouraging me, the reader to like, let's go, come on. We got a plot to get through. And that didn't necessarily correlate to the way that the characters were moving through the book. And so how do you, it feels like witchcraft, like the way that you, <laughs> that you play with time and space. And I guess I'd just love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah. So for me that, um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by time and space. One of my big heroes when I was six was Einstein. I'm also um, fascinated by consciousness. So I've been studying that and our perception of this thing we call time, which is actually very elusive and the arrow of time, right? And then I'm also fascinated by simultaneity, the sense that we have the linear notion of time. I mean, that's how we organize it, but that's just a function of, of our particular moment and our particular consciousness. Because then there are those moments when time just stops, you know, and I've had those moments and, and it's really a lot about perception and consciousness and how I mark it. You know, to me, the past has not gone anywhere right? And, and the future is present. So if I have a seed, there was a tree and there will be one. But all I have is the seed. And the movement of time, the moment to moment movement of time feels differently for like a, a mayfly that lives one day, uh, the human being that lives a hundred years, perhaps. And the tree, you know, there are trees that are, oh my, they're the oldest living things, right? Except for bacteria, which haven't died. I, I wanted to think about that when I was, I always think about that when I'm writing, it's part of the, the, the character work. And, and also those moments where time shifts. We have a notion of time is money and all, all this crap yeah. that we have, you know, that has to do with the gray men, that we are not able to like do nothing and sit 
and and wait. One of the there's a theater exercise where you you close your eyes and you feel into yourself with self and you notice how you balance, how you deal with gravity. And we're always making small adjustments to stay standing. So, you know, it's a little dance. So you just stand and you feel and you feel your breath dropping in. Um, and then you can relax the muscles, relax the tension and just be. And you're not worried about anything. You're not having to do anything. You're just present. That notion of time when you're doing nothing and the notion of time, uh, one of my favorite Einstein thought experiments is riding a photon. So if you're riding a photon, there is actually, you're always, there's no time. I mean, it's amazing, you know? And so I wanted to think, what does that mean? Um, and so partly I do that in, in when they go to smoke land, right? I, I do thought experiments. That's what smoke land is, a place where you can do thought experiments, um, a place where you can be out of the regular time. And when people come back, different periods of time have passed than what they experienced within it. So, you know, you are able to make connections that you couldn't normally in your everyday time make. Um, and it's like um, many indigenous people have a, a, you know, a place like dream time or, mm -hmm. you know, where you go to shift yourself out of the everyday. So it's a ritual and usually you get there, you know, doing what we did, you know, in the circle um, so that it's a it's a sacred moment in which you connect with the cosmos. That is something I want to get into my work that, you know, and we have the ability to go there, um, whether you're a believer or not, like the believers get there doing what they do and the people who don't quite believe but will do the stuff. If you do the gesture, the emotion follows. <laughs> they get there, too. So. Um, to me, it's part of, you know, when I said science, religion, magic, and art, um, it's, you know, it's the sacred time um, that I want to communicate to everyone. So I'm trying to get it in, in my novels, in my plays, in my poems, wherever. I guess a little bit of that is the teacher in you. I, I keep thinking during our conversation right now about this one moment in the book. It comes sort of towards the middle where... Jola is talking to Samina and she tells him something like, do this for me, become the master of weeds and wild things. And he immediately dismissively replies that no one can master weeds and wild things. There's so much of in your book that is teaching, that is, that is opening up doors of opportunity, but there's also an encouragement to unlearning, to unlearning mm. the things that don't work for yeah. us anymore. Yeah. It, it, there's a curious tension in that of both sort of encouraging let go of the things that don't work and perhaps embrace something new. Yeah. How do you balance, how did you balance that tension in your, in your own self while you were working on the book? It's an ongoing process. There are things I think I know and I believe them and I believe them strongly. And then I meet, I get, well, better data. <laughs> Just using that, you know, image. Oh, oh. And then I have to reframe. I have to, you know, like, why did I think that before? So it's back to that very first sentence that, you know, we're holding on to our gods um, and we might have to let them go. But sometimes they're right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we have to know. And, and I think I have, you know, Alwa ask Yari, like, how do you know when to let go? And, and Yari says, hmm. 
and it gets no answer, you know, and so the, the answer is in the doing. So you, you have to just do what you can and then be honest and open to the what comes back, what you find, what you discover, what you uncover. And then you realize, oops, or ah, you know, uh, but both things are possible. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really important to, to have values, to have, you know, a sense of truth, to have ethics, to have all those things, because you need those to be, you know, like a responsible being in, in the universe. But you also have to realize that you're very limited. You only know hardly anything. <laughs> you never master the weeds and wild things. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I, I think, you know, I think Jola was, he wanted to be, a, you know, perfect. And Samina didn't care about perfection. She wanted the struggle. The struggle for her um, is like, look at what is around you and, and let go of the, you know, you have a lot of evidence now, Jola. <laughs> You don't need to believe in that anymore. You can let that go. I mean, I think we're all scientists. We gather data, we, you know, reflect upon it, we come up with a theory and we act on it, <laughs> right? We do that all the time. We do, you know, we may not do a double blind study, but we basically do, you know, we think, ah, I've had five encounters in this way and this happened. So not the sixth encounter, I will do this based on those five encounters. Now, of course, there's bias and all this other stuff going on, but the basic project is to succeed in the world, to have sort of a forecasting capacity. Since I have seen these six things, I now know what to do. And therefore, I have theorized these actions. Now, the seventh time you do that same thing, and it's a mess, right? And you have to go back and say, oh, the six times I did it was a limited sample. And we, you know, we do this all the time. All the time, all the time, all the time. Sometimes then we hold on to that and say, well, I don't care. And sometimes we revise and sometimes we say, this is an anomaly. All of those are possible, right? But we're constantly coming up with a, you know, our, you know, theory of how to be in the world. I, I'm an Afrofuturist. I believe in indigenous wisdom. Um, and so that I, I have a core um, feeling that there are, are ways of knowing the world that we that we can tap into and that they can give us real power that we've dismissed. So, you know, back yeah. to theater, you know, so a lot of people think theater is not that important. I, I, you know, or, or why, why are you doing that? Or, you know, even writers, I mean, you know, we need like whatever, make money or, you know, there's a whole set of values that would not value the, the amount of work I needed to do in order to write um, Master of Poisons. But, you know, how do we, find our way to one another because we've been not doing so well <laughs> in yeah. the last, I don't know, forever, but we could do better. We could do better. I think that's what I, what allowed me to write Master of Poisons because you said the hope, that was my hope. They're going to dance with one another somehow. I don't know how, uh, it's a hard problem, but I have to find that way. I, I, you know, I took the time to find that way and it made me feel much better about the world and I was able to get the book out and I hope people enjoy reading that um, that process that the characters go through to to dance with the other
for our final stop, I thought it would be fun to head back to the mothership, in a way, and talk to somebody behind the scenes at Tor. And I was deeply honored to have the chance to talk with Claire Eddy, who's been at Tor for 35 years and is now an editorial director there. We talked for a while about football, about art, about life, about life during the pandemic and these strange times. But mostly I wanted to know first what it was that brought her to genre and kept her in genre, but also what she saw out there in the world and what was exciting to her about, you guessed it, the future. Part of it is built into my DNA because my mom read science fiction and fantasy and I read it from a very, very early age. So I was a fan before I was a professional. And I think the thing that drew me to genre, keeps me in genre, is the story. It's, it's, it's always the story. That hack, Willie Shakespeare, he really had it right. You know, people think, oh, that's fine literature. Yeah, he was playing to the, the, the base. There are fart jokes and there's sex jokes. And there... he was a storyteller. And, and I think if he were alive today, he'd be writing in genre. I know I've just annoyed a whole lot, a whole lot of liter- literature professors, but I really think he would be writing in genre for that very reason. Anytime I see people reading, I'm happy, you know. The bigger thing that makes me over the moon insanely happy is the fact that in the last five, six years, our tent has gotten larger. Other voices, voices that should have been heard all along. The stories, and again, I come back and back again to stories. The stories were always here, but people weren't being heard. And the more we do it and the bigger the tent gets, the better it's going to be for everybody. I I know there are some people who are unhappy and, and you and I can kind of figure out who they are. But I'd like them, if they can, to understand that a larger tent doesn't mean less for that person. It's more for all of us. A lot of the books that I have worked on also have that element of hope. Yes, there will be loss. Yes, characters that you adore will die. But there usually is some sort of sense of either honor or if not joy, then resolution because you know an honorable death in the cause of a thing while being terribly sad is ultimately hopeful so yeah yeah hopeful hopeful kindness oh well good i'm I, i'm glad because we're all in this together. Every, I mean, I saw I saw a meme the other day 
and and I was startled and then I was sad and then I thought okay no actually this is very hopeful and it's it's uh it's a TikTok right of this woman getting ready for a Zoom meeting and so she's putting she's putting the makeup on almost like clown makeup cuz cuz she's so upset and and at one point she she rubs her hands against her cheek and she rubs her hands over her eyes and while she's putting the makeup on she'll stop and she'll put the the practice face of smiling in the camera and then she goes back to feeling despair and then and then there's the face and and then you know and at one point a tear rolls down her cheek and then she puts on the face and it's it's a mask i mean brilliantly done it's a mask of i'm okay i'm okay and i looked at that and i went wow oh i'm so sad and then i went but wait she's acknowledging the sadness and yet she's going to do that zoom meeting even if she has to fake that smile and then i thought every single one of us is doing that we're 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 compartmentalizing you you have to go in a corner and maybe cry for 5 minutes or you have to go and take some deep breaths and go okay all right this is still happening and then you go back to it and then you go back to it and that's how we as a species survives something sad about the end of a book or the end of a journey like i said earlier i don't enjoy goodbyes my friends will confirm that i am a big believer in the irish goodbye to the extent that historically i have even not told the people who i've come with that i'm heading out but that's because there's something so final about it even if you know you're going to see those people tomorrow there's something quite formal about saying goodbye but this journey continues. Your journey, dear listener, continues. Oh, sure. You're disembarking here. I'm giving you back your bags, making sure that you have all your tchotchkes. But you're going to go read more. So am I. And maybe somewhere out there among the stars or across a distant ocean that on the map only says, here be dragons, we may meet again carrying, I have no doubt, a bunch more book recommendations. And until that time, whenever it does come, I hope you stay well, I hope you read well, and I hope everything is bright, exciting, and absolutely fantastic. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn, Mixing, mastering, and engineering done at Stardust House. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, to the whole team at Tor, and to all of you for listening. 